Hey, good morning, church. It's good to see so many here. Good to have those of you joining us online. And, uh, you know, it's one of those hot, hot days. I'm sure we got some people doing church on the boat today. So, you know, those of you in the room, say hi to them. Uh, you know, good to have them with us. Hey, I want, want to tell you a story. And embrace yourself. It's, it's not a pleasant story. Look, last year, there was a group of refugees, a group of people who had been brutally persecuted for a long season for their faith in Myanmar. And these people were conned by human smugglers to give every penny they had to purchase their freedom and get on some boats headed toward, uh, toward Malaysia. And once they set out to sea on these boats, they were in short time abandoned and left adrift on the water. And after just a few days drifting on that water, their provisions were exhausted. No water, no food, nothing they needed. And so these people drifting water as far as they could see, sun beating down on them, they got thirsty and thirsty and thirstier and thirstier. And so some of them did what you would hope they wouldn't do, not knowing that the sea's high salt content would only make them thirstier, they began drinking the seawater. And that high salt content just made them thirst for more. So they began drinking more and more and more, trying to stave off the dehydration. They only accelerated the process. So initially, blood pressure dropped. Their heart rates skyrocketed. They became thirstier and thirstier, massive headaches, which then led to deliriousness and then led to unconsciousness. And by the time the Bangladesh Coast Guard had reached these people on the rescue mission to pull them off those overpacked boats, nearly one-fourth of those people had died. It's a tragic story. Such a sad, sad story. And it's, it's weird to me, so strange how that's often the way things go. That the thing we turn to to help us is actually the thing that hurts us. Surrounded by water as far as they could see, and as thirsty as they could be, they began drinking the water, thinking it would help them, and that was the very thing that hurt them. You know, that's how it is with addiction. The addict turns to the drug to try and help them, to try and help them cope with life. And whatever the drug might be, alcohol, tobacco, opiates, sex, sugar, Netflix, whatever it might be. They, they turn to that thing to escape the world, to, to have that coping mechanism to, to try and make life better. But then that thing begins to take ownership of them. And the thing they're actually turning to to help deal with life's problems, to escape the problems, becomes the biggest problem in their life, becomes the thing that destroys them. It, it's paradoxical. It's paradoxical that the things we would turn to for help are the things that sometimes are the least helpful for us. Last week, we took a look at this concept that all of life is paradoxical, that what seems true often is not true, that a paradox is something that goes against our instincts. It goes against the way we would instinctively believe is the way the world works, and it forces us to engage with going the opposite direction of that. And so much of life is paradoxical. 
It's a paradox that things that feel good are not always good for us. Things that we perceive would bring us help are not always helpful for us. Last week we took a look at the paradox that spending our life in service to God and giving our time and our energy to help others actually produces more life and more satisfaction for us. It doesn't seem that way. The paradox. We would think that if I just hoard my time for myself, if I just cling to my time and I use my talents and I leverage those things for my own personal gain, that's where I'll find satisfaction. But it's not true. And so it's only in surrendering those things that I actually find deep satisfaction and find life. And I was so encouraged last week when I challenged you all to go and sign up to serve that we had... That we, we already have hundreds of people serving in this church, and some of you re-upped that. But we had 60 people sign up to serve for the first time last week. So 60 brand new servers, right? That's great. And here's what's really cool. At least a couple of those people, it was their first time at church. That was their first time at OCC. They'd never been here before. They show up. They hear the message. They're like, oh, we're supposed to be obedient to Jesus. Let's go serve. And they signed up last week. So at least a couple people did that. And I get really excited about that. I get excited about what that number represents. Because it's not just about what's going on here in the life of this church, but it's what it represents for the kingdom impact. There's always a greater kingdom impact when God's people are obedient to God's commands and God's message for us. And I'm really excited for how those people who jumped in to serve for the first time are going to have more life, more satisfaction, truer life as a result of surrendering some of their time and some of their talent. It gets me really excited. Now, if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and watch the message, and there's still plenty of spots to serve. We'll always make places for people to serve. We're never going to run out of that because we believe that's an important part of what we do as kingdom people. So we'll make spots for you if we need, but we still have some spots open, and you can sign up after the service on the stone wall in front, or you can just jump on your phone and sign on through there. Now, we're in a series we're calling Next, where we're taking a look at a handful of what we think are the most important, or some of the most important, next steps you can take in your journey with Jesus. And we believe that everybody always has a next step. If you're still breathing, you have a next step. And this step language we use is because that's the way the Christian life is. We believe God has more for us. But to experience this filled to the top, overflowing kind of life that Jesus wants for us, it does require something from us. And that allows room for God to do something in us, and then he works through us. See all the movement there? From and for and in and through, and there's movement there. That's the way the Christian life is. There's always movement towards Jesus. So no matter how long we've been doing this Christian thing, no matter how long we've been walking with Jesus, no matter how long we've been coming to church, every single one of us always has a next step to take with Jesus. Last week, we took a look at the step of serving. This week, I want to explore another step with you and another paradox with you. And so what we're going to explore this week is something that we have heard a lot, and many of you have heard a lot about it, but there's still a lot of people who have never really fully engaged with it. And the reason, I think, is because it is the opposite of what our instincts would tell us. It's paradoxical. It goes against what we would think is what's best for us. So I'm going to let Jesus introduce this one again. It's actually in the book of Acts. It says, you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus, and this is what Jesus said. It is more blessed to give 
than to receive. More blessed to give than to receive. And that's paradoxical. We would think that it's way more blessed to receive, to get more than it is to give more. And like we saw last week, giving our time and our talent is really important. We give our time, we give our talent. That's how we serve. But the holy hat trick of giving is not complete until we include the third T, our treasure. That God wants us to give our treasure as well, to surrender that to him as well, and that includes our finances. So, yes, we're going to talk about giving today. And if you're new to us or newer to us, this might be your first time with us in person or online, just stay with me. And for some of those who have been with us for a long time, some of you who are doing church on the boat today, just stick with it. (laughs) Don't turn it off. And hold tight because I think God has something for us in this. Last week, we saw that paradox. We saw that God has something for us. And I think we see that God has something for us in this topic as well. God's message in the Bible is clear, that followers of Jesus should live generously. And that means we should give generously. And that means it should be in all parts of our life, including our finances. The Old Testament teaches that we should return 10% of what God has given us back to him, give it back to his kingdom purpose. Jesus affirms that and teaches that in the New Testament. We call it the tithe. That's what it means, just 10%. And we believe 10% should go back to the church for kingdom purpose. That Jesus affirmed that and taught that. And then elsewhere in the New Testament, they actually go beyond that and teach that we should be generous beyond the tithe. And so it looks like God has something for us when we give of ourselves in that way. Followers of Jesus... For, for followers of Jesus, generosity isn't just to be something we do. It's not just part of this life. Generosity should define the very fiber of who we are. If we follow Jesus, we should be able to enthusiastically make this claim that we are ridiculously generous. Why? Because we take Jesus at his word. And we believe that it really is better to give than to receive. All of Jesus' followers should be able to make that claim that I'll give ridiculously because it's better to give than receive. And Christ's followers should be the most generous people on earth. We're called to be generous with our time, our talent, and our treasure. We're called to be generous with everything we have. Being careful not to allow those things to become idols for us or steal our attention away from God. So that's what should be true. The reality is that recent studies have confirmed what several studies have shown over the years. That 20% of those who regularly attend church... And when I say regularly attend, I don't mean the people you see once in a while. These are the people who you expect to see like all the time. Like, oh yeah, see them at church every day. I, I, just, I know they're going to sit right there. I'm going to see them when they sit there. You know, not pointing at you necessarily. Not calling out anyone. For but 20% of the people who are regularly here at any given church in the U.S. don't give anything to their church. 70% of the people who are Christians give less than 2% of their income. To the church. So that's what we know. And that leaves room for some people to give pretty generously, but for most of us, we don't. For most of us, our willingness to give is limited by how we want to live. It's as though we say, sure, God, I'll give you something as long as it doesn't impede on my quality of life, as long as it doesn't mean I got to change my standard of living, as long as it means I don't have to give something else up. I'll give some. And listen, I don't say this condemningly. I don't say this with judgment. I say this because that was my story for so long. 
When I first came to Jesus, I didn't give. I didn't give for a while. And then when I did give, I gave inconsistently. I gave out of convenience. Oh, I got a couple extra bucks. Am I still going to be able to eat? You know, when I was young, it's like, am I still going to be able to eat my fast food on the way home? Okay, well, I can give a couple dollars from that. So that was basically how I gave. Convenient, comfortable. And then once I started giving more regularly, I gave, but I gave to a point of keeping it comfortable. Where I didn't really have to change my standard of living. I didn't it didn't really force me to grow. It didn't force me to trust in God. It didn't force me to flex my faith muscle. I could just give and be comfortable. I could, I could still trust in my earnings, and I could still trust in my savings, and I didn't really have to adjust much of my spendings. And, and what I found through that, what I discovered, it was that really didn't honor God. That kind of giving doesn't honor God, and it doesn't help us. It doesn't grow us. It, it's not a spiritual discipline. It's not a spiritual habit. It's just... We give out of different reasons. And so I, I began exploring this more. And, you know, the reality is the Israelites, God's people in the Old Testament, they, they face similar temptations. They, they face the temptation to trust in the size of their army and the size of their city. They face the temptation to trust in how much grain they had in their bins and their barns. They, they face the temptation to, to trust in the amount of the, their flocks and their herds. They face the temptation to trust in what they had done and what they had accomplished and in their own work and not put their trust in God. And, and whenever we live like that, we begin trusting in what we have and what we've done instead of the one who has us and the one who's done everything for us. And we begin this dangerous slide from trusting in God as provider to trusting in how we provide for ourselves. That's a dangerous place to live. I know, because I was there. And it stunted my faith. In the life of David, David from the Old Testament, David of David and Bathsheba, David of David and Goliath, King David, who wrote many of the Psalms, that David. There was a moment when David began trusting more in the size of his army than in the size of his God. And the bigness of his army is the bigness of who God is. And when David realized that he was trusting in the wrong things, and he realized that was sin and problematic for his own growth, he was broken and said, I, I, I've got I've to repent of this. I've got to make amends. I'm going to sacrifice for this. I'm, I'm going to demonstrate my sorrow by sacrificing to God. And so he went to a guy named Aruna. Aruna owned this nice piece of land. He owned a bunch of animals, owned the, the wood and the stone and everything needed for the altar. And David went to him and said, I want to buy all of this, all the, the, the herds and the flocks. And I, I need to buy the, the land and the stone and the wood. I need to buy everything needed to make this sacrifice to my God. So I can demonstrate that I'm making things right. And I love Aruna's response. Aruna was like, hold up, hold up. You are my king and you are sacrificing to our God. You can have it. Take it all. Here it is, David. David boy, it's all yours. And I love that response. Just said, I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to God. But I also love David's response. Because David said, no, 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 no. He replied to Aruna. No, I insist on buying it. For I will not present offerings to the Lord our God that have cost me nothing. Listen, when I sacrifice it, it should cost me something. I'm not going to give to God that which is just easy to give. Friends, I think we all know that giving can be relatively easy. It, It can be. 
It, it can be relatively easy as long as it doesn't really require too much from us. That, that we can give as long as it doesn't really disrupt our standard of living. But that kind of giving doesn't honor God and it doesn't grow us. You know, you, you can have a whole lot of money. Like a whole lot of money. And you can give a whole lot of money that other people are like, wow, that's a lot of money. But for you, giving that wow factor kind of money for others might not really be that much for you. At the same time, you can have a small amount of money. And that might be where some of you are. And you can give what others would say, well, that's, that's a pretty small amount to give. But for you, that percentage might actually be a demonstration of ridiculous generosity. See, it's not always just in how big the gift is, but it's in how big our heart is, how big our motive is, how much we're tied to that thing. For for some of us, I, I would say this, that we shouldn't only focus on how much we give. We should also take a look at what we keep back for ourselves. How much am I actually holding on to? Living generously requires us to go just directly against the grain in American culture. It it goes against our instincts. Our instincts tell us to keep as much as we have, to make as much as we can, to to store it up and hold on to it and spend it for ourselves and and, and protect ourselves with this nest egg and have these things. And and giving, living generously just goes right against that. It, It goes against not just instinct, not American culture. It goes against American Christian culture. A lot of times in our American Christian culture, we, we have this idea that, that if you have money, then that's a blessing from God. And, and it can be. It might be. But we don't really have much of a framework to say, well, my money could be a barrier to God. Because it could be that as well. And, and whether it's a blessing or a barrier depends largely on what we do. It depends a lot on, on how we look at it. See, I, our money could become to us like spiritual salt water. It's all around us. And we're told we need to accumulate as much as we can and, and have as much stuff as we can and live as nice as we can. We're, we're told that we're to have all these things. And, and having more might actually be choking us out. It might actually be keeping us from experiencing the true living water Jesus wants to give to us. It, it, it could be choking us out because the more we get the more we want and we become thirstier and thirstier wanting more and more and more like spiritual salt water and and we begin to lose sight of trusting in God and we begin to lose sight of contentment and we begin we begin trusting in what we have instead of in our God and that can lead to a dehydrated soul again I say this because I've been there See, if we measure our blessings just by the size of our bank accounts and the stuff we have and how nice it is, I don't think we really understand what God means by blessing. He has so much more for us than that. Take a look at what Paul tells Timothy. This is God's perspective through Paul. It says, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Like that's how God defines wealth. It's godliness with contentment. That's being rich. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we ain't taking any of it with us when we leave. The box is pretty tiny, and you can't fit it all in. So if we have enough, everybody say enough. All right, everybody, including those of you online, everybody say enough. All right, if we have enough food and clothing, 
Let's be content. Content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, let's back that up. It's not money. Money is neutral. It's what we do with it whether it has the affection of our heart. If it's becoming the thing that we're chasing after, if we're loving money, then that becomes the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money, falling in love with money, have wandered from true faith. Instead of faith in God, they're putting their faith in money. And they've pierced themselves with many sorrows. The, the common mindset is to say, well, I will give more when I have more. I'll give more when I have enough. When I have enough in my retirement account, when I have enough for the kids' college fund, when I have enough for that dream home, when I have enough for the pleasures, when I have enough to spend, when I have enough for security, when I have enough, then I'll give. The problem is enough like fluctuates, it changes, and, and we're always chasing this enough. So, so the problem becomes like, how much is enough? Like, do we define that for ourselves? Uh, for me, years ago, that was a great spiritual practice, defining enough, and then determining once I reach enough beyond that, I, don't, I just don't need it. So how much is enough? Because enough changes for us. What seems like more than enough when we don't really have much eventually seems like not nearly enough when we have more. If you regularly get a raise for your job, you know how that is. I mean, when my wife and I first started out, I was on a first-year teacher's salary, and we didn't have much. But it seemed to be enough. But now... Well, now I've got colleges, and I've got a boy who is just hard on everything. So it's like, man, I got to save up to just fix things regularly, and eventually he'll be driving. And and I, two girls, uh, I, you know, possibility of a couple weddings staring me down. Like, how much is it? What would you? What at one point seemed like more than enough. Now it's like, ooh, would that even get us through? Could I even feed three teenagers on that? <laughs> Not like, you know how it is. Think of the car you drive now versus the first car you owned. It's so easy to think, oh, I need a little bit more. I need a little bit nicer. That's how the world works, and it challenges us. What was once more than enough eventually doesn't seem like nearly enough. So Paul goes on. He says, teach those who are rich in this world. Let me just pause right there. If you have a car, or if you have a house, or if you have indoor plumbing, you are rich by this world's standards. You have any of those things? You're rich. Paul says, teach those. Listen, I'm just a messenger. I'm just doing what Paul told me and Timothy to do. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Anybody remember last year when COVID first hit? And we had like this three-month span of time when the world economy just tanked. And we were terrified. Because what does that mean for our money? What does that mean for our savings? What does that mean for our retirement? What does that mean for our accounts? We think back to 08. And when the boom went and hit the bust. And some people are still reeling from that. And we think of so many times when money proves itself unreliable. Now, I'm not advocating to be irresponsible. I don't think it's a sin to save or to have insurance or anything like that. But certainly, where is our trust? Paul says, their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. He doesn't just give us what we need for survival. He gives us even what we need for our enjoyment. 
It says, so tell them to use their money to do good. Tell them to be do-gooders. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future. It's not a bad thing to store up your treasure for the future, but store up the right kind of treasure so that they may experience true life. He's telling us, don't store up all your treasures for future here. Store up the right kind of treasure. What, what Paul's getting at is this, this paradox that contentment is not found in getting more, that we find contentment from deciding that what we already have is more than enough, that that's where contentment comes from. Contentment comes from deciding that I already have more than enough, so I don't have to clamor for more and more and more. And, and so the way we live this out, it, it, it just goes against our instincts. It, it goes against what we would think that we need to have more. And Paul says, you don't. You've already got more than enough. And when we acknowledge that, we begin to live into that, we begin to discover true wealth, the wealth that God wants us to have. And so the way we do this is we prioritize necessity. What are the true necessities of life? We prioritize necessity and we limit luxury. Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't incorrectly hear me. I'm not saying you have to eliminate all luxuries. I'm not saying you got to sell everything you have, go live in a desert, give it all away and live like some weird hermit. Like that's not, listen, it's not a sin to have money. It's not evil to have money, even lots of it. It's not a sin, it's not evil to have nice things, even lots of them. But where we get into danger is when we have lots of that and we don't surrender it to God. So if we have, but we don't let God have it, that wars against our soul. And that is sin, according to Scripture. When my kids were little, we came up with this phrase, born of necessity, that people are more important than things. And we said it all the time, still say it. People are more important than things. And the way this was born in the Fitz house was we would watch our kids who were playing in the same room and there's like 20 toys on the floor. And then one of them grabs another toy out of the box or off the shelf and suddenly the other one wants the exact same thing. Has been totally content, but wait a second, there's another toy. Oh, I, what are you doing touching my toy? And there was a moment... This one moment where our kids were wrestling over the family pet, the family dog. Here's the deal. We've had two kinds of pets in the Fitz home. We've had rabbits, which I don't include as pets. They were just these evil little creatures that lived in cages on the side of the garage. Not a pet to me, but my daughters would say different. And then we had fish, beta fish. I don't know how much of a pet that is. They just float around, not very interactive. We've never owned a dog. But my daughters were arguing over the family dog, which was a ball of yarn, kind of like this. And they were like furious with each other, like pulling, you're going to hurt the dog. Like, it's my dog. No, it's my turn to walk the dog. They wanted to play with the dog. It, It was yarn they were pretending was a dog. Like, they were little. Like, this wasn't like last year, okay? Like, it's like, it was way back, right? That's the first time we had them. So they're like going at each other, and they're like arguing. And, and I'm, I'm looking at this like it's, it, it's yarn. Like, it's, you know. So I'm reminding them, but people are more important than things. Dad, it's not a thing. It's the dog. And I'm like, hold up. We got to come way out of fantasy land for this for a moment. It's yarn. <laughs> like, I had to like elevate this, all right? And they were wrestling over the dog, and they were so upset. And so I watched my kids, like, all the time. I had to remind them, no, 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 people matter more. Listen, if you think that thing's more important than the person, then you're losing sight of life. Like, that means you value that thing over the value of that person, and you're missing it. 
So each year I take three or four times a year to just like pause and do this, this evaluation of myself, all kinds of different areas. And it was like that year that I'm looking and I'm doing this evaluation, just how am I doing with my stuff? And I realized, old preacher boy ain't practicing what he's preaching. Because I had stuff. And I wasn't very good about loaning it or letting other people have it. And I was wrestling with how much we had and were we going to have enough. And I was wrestling with trusting God on my finances and all these pieces. I said, man, I just, I got I to gotta change this. This is not good. This is not okay for me to be telling my kids, it's just yarn. And then I'm looking at my stuff like, but that matters. Now, and so I adopted a phrase from preacher and author Andy Stanley, one that he uses for himself, and I have found it incredibly freeing for me. I, if I can't loan it, then I don't need to own it. If I can't own it, or sorry, if I can't loan it, then I don't need to own it. And let me tell you, that was just a game changer for me. Because if I have something that I'm not willing to share, if I'm not willing to leverage it for kingdom purpose and let somebody else use it, then that means I'm running the risk of making that thing more valuable than that person. And that just didn't sit well with me. And so I began this principle, if I, if I own it, it's loanable. Now, not like irresponsibly. I, I believe God entrusts stuff to us for the long haul to help as many people as much as we can for as long as we can. So I have some boundaries around responsible loanership that accompany my ownership. But listen, if I have it, that's loanable. That includes my tools. That includes my clothes. That includes my cars. That includes my house. And the times when we have loaned those things out have been some of the best moments of blessing for myself and my family. The times we said, you know what? It's really not ours. It's God's. We think God wants us to do this with it. Here it is. And that includes our money. And it has freed us up to discover the true wealth that God has for us and the true life that he has for us. And what I've discovered is the reality of the paradox of Jesus' words, that it really is way more blessed to give than receive. As I have discovered and I invite you to discover with me, Increased giving has been a doorway to increased living. The more I open that door for giving, the more I find true life coming in. That I'm not bogged down and held hostage by all the junk in my life. I'm freed up and I get to see how much people really do matter and their true value. And it has become such a ridiculous blessing to me that I just want to grab hold of that phrase. Man, I just want to be a ridiculous giver to be ridiculously generous because it really is way more blessed to give than receive. And so what I've discovered, and I think what you'll discover is if you look closer, Jesus' words are really not an invitation to sacrifice as much as it is an invitation for satisfaction. That he's really not telling you to to give up that much. He's asking to surrender some earthly trinkets for eternal treasure. And that's like, that's all we have. I mean, all the stuff that we cling to, when we, when we find ourselves at the end of our days in a little box, like none of that stuff goes with it. And so compared to the treasure of eternity, all we have are like junk store trinkets. And he says, I mean, just, you can enjoy those, but just share it. Just leverage it. And what I've found is that Jesus really is not calling us away from treasure. He's calling us to it to a fuller treasure, a more beautiful treasure, a lasting treasure. 
He's really not calling us to give up that much. He's calling us to gain hold of all that he has. He says, listen, you've got so much stuff in your hands, you've got you to let some of that stuff go so you can grab hold of what I want to give to you that is so much better for you. I just want you to take hold of this, my child. So he's calling us to treasure, not away from it. So here's, here's how we apply the principle. We lean into the paradox. We give to God what our instincts would tempt us to keep for ourselves. I say, God, it's yours. Jesus, you gave everything on a cross for me. And, and you invite me into the most incredible kind of treasure of being part of your kingdom forever with you and your people. God, I want that. I don't want anything to get in the way of that. So I'll let go of some of this other stuff. Church, what would it be like? Now, we, we dreamt a little bit last week. I want to invite you to dream with me again this week. What would it be like if this church... We're not just known for being big, but be, for being like incredibly generous. What, what would it be like if every person here gave in such a way that it forced us to trust God with our finances? Not to trust in ourselves and our savings, but like, God, I'm giving to the point where like, you better pull through for me. Like it forces us to flex our faith muscle and to lean into him. Well, what would it be like if, if we gave at a place, like at a level where where every ministry initiative was fully funded, that we could take on more missionaries and fully support them, if we could just unleash ridiculous levels of generosity in our community? What would it be like if that were the kind of church this is? What would it be like if we began to look at our finances and our stuff, not just as things that we're entitled to, but more so as things that God has entrusted to us, that it's his that he's trusting us with? What would it be like if... If we were all more focused on increasing our standard of giving and not our standard of living. Like I think those what ifs can become what wills and I think those what wills can become what dids and we would become way satisfied. But that will only happen if all of us say, I'm all in. If you'll join me in going all in with God saying, God, here it is. What I have is yours. I'm a church, let, let, let's, let's explore this. So what, what would it look like if everyone in the church gave at the level you give? This is the gut check for me. How much honor would God get? How much glory would God get? How much faith would I put on display if everybody gave at the level I give? If everybody gives at the level you give, would that be the kind of church you would want to be part of? And for some of you, I know it is. Because I know that there are people here who, who give at just an incredibly generous level. And they're not all people who have a lot. Some of those people are people who really don't have much at all, but who give a lot. So church, I'm gonna invite you to practice immediate obedience to the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna invite you to act on today what God says we need to do to live the life he has invited us to live, to make the change in us put the effort from us so that we can receive what he has for us. So when you leave this room today, in a moment I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing and after that we're going to, we're going to leave. And on that wall out in front in the center of our lobby, in that stone wall, you'll find some cards like this. Just like we did with serving last week, we're doing with giving this week. And so I'm going to invite you, if you are one of those people who was like I was for a while and you just don't give, and just begin. Just choose a percentage and say, man, I'm, I'm going to try it. And if you're one of those people who gives inconsistently or comfortably or kind of conveniently, 
then choose to begin giving consistently and do the same thing. Just just choose a level and say, man, I'm, I'm going in with this. And maybe you're a person who's been terrified of the tithe for a long time. We did a thing here at the end of last year called the 90-day the challenge. And it's kind of ongoing and, and we're doing it again right now. Where there's one place in scripture where God says, listen, if you put me to the test, the only place where God invites us to test him, he says, put me to the test. You give me your tithe and see if I don't pour out my blessing upon you. Now, I don't think that blessing comes back like dollar for dollar, penny for penny. It, it could, but I think the blessing is way bigger than that. And, and I had someone after the last service come up to me with visible emotion and say, we did that 90-day challenge last year. It was the game changer for us. And God's blessing has been unleashed in our lives. And we're never going back. And that's what I want for you. And here's how that 90-day challenge works. You, you, you go in and you say, all right, 90 days of tithing. We'll just put God to the test. Only a couple people in our church and our finance department will know how much you're giving. I'll know that you're giving. I just won't know how much. I don't need to know that. But that's only so I can encourage you in it. And at the end of that 90 days, if you say Fitz was blowing smoke and that is a lie and that is a bunk, we will give it all back. No questions asked, no strings attached. Give it back. Now, if you're one of those people who is one of those ridiculously generous people, I just want to invite you to stay the course and even to ask, God, how much is enough? What's my next step? Is there even more? And church, I want you to know I'm in it with you. I'm doing the same thing. My wife and I, we're, we're talking through this, we're wrestling through this, saying, God, what more do you have for us? Because we just want to experience more of you. So let's pray. God, I know that this topic is a tough one. It's, it's a weird one. It's not always well received. Because here in America, in the American church, our, our money, we hold close. It's personal. It's private. But God, I pray that all of us here would be willing to say it's yours to trust you. God, if we trust you with our eternity, we'll trust you with our day-to-day finances. And with whatever we have, say, God, it's yours. And I'll give to a point where it demonstrates that my trust is in you, God, and not in my money, not in my earnings, not in my possessions, not in what I hold. So God, give us the courage to be obedient. And God, as we do, would you just pour out your blessing? Just pour out your blessing upon those who go all in with you. Pour out your blessing upon this church and through us. Make your blessings known to this community, to this world. God, it's all yours. It all comes from you. So give us courage to follow you with deep, rich, ridiculous levels of faith that you would be honored and glorified in us. We pray it in Jesus' name who gave it all for us. Amen.